Well, let's take our Bibles and we'll be in the Old Testament today in Isaiah chapter 53. And uh, for some of us, we won't see each other until Christmas has passed. So Merry Christmas. And I was, thanks Joseph. I was thinking this week as I was studying about just everything that's happened this year. And I was just overwhelmed by a sense of gratitude. I know that we had Thanksgiving just a little over a month ago. And I want to express to you as, as my church family, my faith family, I'm incredibly grateful to be a part of Rocky Mount Baptist Church. And uh, we'll have another, <laughs> praise the Lord, yes. Uh, we'll have one more Sunday together in 2014. And I just look back over what the Lord has done this year. And how many of, of you this, this year, this year in your life, God just God just did a work in your heart. And for some of you, 2013, you didn't care anything about the Lord. You weren't plugged in at church anywhere. You weren't financially supporting missions in any way. It was just all about you. And in 2014, a friend reached out to you. All the prayers that had been prayed for you by your mom or grandma or granddad. Uh, visitation team here did connection, whatever God used. And you're here and you're plugged in for the glory of God. And we've seen so many people this year, and I absolutely love this, who, who wouldn't necessarily be like changing from active serving from one church to ours, but people who didn't go to church anywhere. Rocky Mount family, that is absolutely awesome. I mean, and that's what, if the Lord is leading you, if you, if you or have your home church somewhere and God's absolutely revealed that this is where you're supposed to be, you've cleared your conscience, you're not bitter, it's not one of those things where an old church is full of just dirty, no good scumbags, but I love Jesus so much I want to come to church with y'all. We're like, well, if that's the case, we've got a lot of churches we can recommend you to, right? Amen, church? And so, but what we want to say is for those of you, and, and you, you just, whatever happened, you've never been plugged in anywhere, or you, or you were raised in church, but you fell out of it, and you've been walking in selfishness, or searching after the dollar, or making your career God, hello? But Jesus has changed your heart this year, and I am so incredibly thankful. I'm not only incredibly thankful for the ones who've come to Jesus this year, but I'm incredibly thankful for those of you who stuck it out year after year after year at Rocky Mount Baptist Church and the highs and the lows. And there there are highs and lows, right, in anything, in your life, in your job, in your marriage, in your church. There's going to be times that are easier than others, but for the glory of God, you stuck it out. You continue to reach out. You continue to support the mission of the church, and everything that has happened goes to God's glory, but we get the joy from it, don't we, church? So I'm just thankful for you this morning. And uh, what we're going to look at is something along the lines of the Christmas season, but it's a, it's a subject and it's a message called Contrary. How the Christmas story that may be so familiar to some of us is actually, even though it's familiar, it goes contrary to everything that we naturally think. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. And if you studied your Bible carefully, you'll know that this and Psalm chapter 22 in the Old Testament are two of the most important prophecies about Jesus when he would come. And Isaiah 53 lines out and foretells and prophesies what Jesus would do when he came. Now, before we get into the text... 
I want to just read to you verse 1, and then we'll break down on why the Christmas story, if it's familiar to us, is actually crazy when we step outside of American culture and look within. So verse 1 in chapter 53 of Isaiah. The Bible says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here's the background. Isaiah... uh, is 66 chapters of absolute prophecy and it's a call for the people to repent. And so Isaiah is building this idea for 53 chapters and then you come to a very clear chapter in chapter 53 on who the Messiah would be, who the Christ, what would he would be like, how could we recognize him and it's going to be so crazy and so mind-blowing that verse 1, it's like the prophet Isaiah says, you know what? I'm going to prophesy what God tells me Jesus will be like, but nobody's going to believe it. That's almost movie line cliche, isn't it? Like, if you told me, I'd never believe you, right? It's it's almost to the point of saying, this is truth. Just letting you guys know that probably very few of you are going to believe it. In America, we're inundated with the Christmas season. Uh, Some of you have bought your gifts months in advance. Those of you who are planners, you were there on Black Friday, got great stuff for a great deal. Some of you guys have not, look, Christmas, oh, right, this was your wake-up call this morning. And we were just inundated with all this stuff, like this guy named, you know, people, some people do Santa, some people don't, Uh, other people do trees and some don't, other people do wreaths and some don't. And so all of that, we, we just had this idea of Christmas. And then somewhere in the middle is this little baby in this manger and this young guy and this young girl and these shepherds all around. And by the way, the wise men didn't show up until way later on. So Jesus wouldn't be an infant by that time. Y'all do know that, right? Sunday school teachers. It always gets awkward, right? Like, seriously, they came later. They came later. And so Jesus was uh, uh, older than when he was just a tiny infant. So all of this Christmas season, it even leads some of us to do things like tacky Christmas sweater parties. Can I get a witness? I mean, did y'all see Reed Hodges and that thing he came down in this morning? I mean, that is a brave soul. He's in the Christmas spirit. And some people dress up like, you know Fred's going to wear red on Christmas. Like, you can call it. You can call it. Cowboys will choke in the fourth quarter. Fred will wear (laughs) Christmas stuff on Christmas. Like, you can call it beforehand. And when we're kids, we love Christmas, right? And parents, you're like, it is 4.30 a.m. The kid's there on the bed. Mom, Dad, want to open the presents. The older kid already opened them and closed them back so that he or she already knows what's going on, right? And so you're like, just, I want to sleep in one day. Please, Lord Jesus. But he gives your spiritual children that gift of getting up early. And so you're there and you're barely awake and trying to read the Christmas story. All of that to say that we're so saturated with Christmassy stuff we sometimes fail to notice how illogical, how crazy, how out of the ordinary, how strange and how bizarre the actual description of the one who brought Christmas would actually be. Notice in verse 2 in Isaiah 53. So already we've been given the warning. You guys are probably not going to believe this. Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Here's the translation. 
What the Bible's saying here is that God's first act to bring redemption to the world is going to be something that has humble beginnings. And here's our driving thought for today. The incarnation of Christ is contrary. It opposes how we naturally think, but it does give us hope beyond ourselves. And the reason why some of us are here in the condition that we're in psychologically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, is because we always have to do it. Are you listening? We always have to be the ones to do it. If we can't do it, then we won't trust. The gospel is saying, you know what? God uses something beyond ourselves, but it starts out very humbly. And in this verse, he's literally saying that the Messiah will be tender. The Messiah will be We could say in one sense of the word, vulnerable. Notice a young plant and a root out of dry ground. I don't know how many young tender shoots of leaves that come out of the ground or roots that ever beat us up. If you do, you need to take karate class. Like I don't know how many great leaders throughout history have been described as a little shoot of grass or a young plant or a root out of dry ground. In other words, what the Bible is saying is the Messiah is going to come in humility. And some of us, we say, well, what is the incarnation? The incarnation, this is in your notes if you received a, uh, an outline when you came in. Incarnation is from the Latin. Carn or carne literally means flesh. In means into. Incarnate means being made into flesh. I heard one guy say like chili con carne is chili with meat. And all real men, if they have the choice, will choose chili con carne, right? And so you have this idea of God coming in the flesh. Time out. God, the one who created everything. Like imagine, imagine everything that is, like actually exists. Everything from the leaky waiters we use to baptize people to this building, to the planet Pluto or Jupiter, all of that. Imagine a time in which none of that actually existed. And this is a mind-blowing thought, but there was a time in which there existed nothing. You don't say there was a time when nothing exists because it makes nothing sound like something, right? So so let this blow your mind. There was a time, and even physicists tell us today, they say there was a point in which the universe began. Now, you either have one choice, someone who's outside of space-time, who's not physical, a.k.a. God. Y'all tracking, this is awesome stuff. You've got that choice, who brought everything that is physical into existence because God, who's not physical, is not subject to the decay of physical things. Or you've got the choice that the universe always has been here. Well, how did it get here? Well, it always has been here. And people say, well, it's the same thing with God. It's not. But which is a better option? A sentient, intelligent being that is beyond time and space or stuff? So you're talking about God, the one who is beyond everything, above everything, who knows our hearts and our minds. Like God knows. He knows who's going to win the football game before it's played. He knows. And so here's God and his plan is to send the Messiah. But the first description is a young plant and a dry root. Imagine if you were God, how would you change the world? So I'm like, boy, if I was dictator, I would, we, we like to play that game, don't we? I mean, we, we know which people should get struck by lightning. 
You've never been cut off in traffic, some of y'all? Like, I'd never think a thought like that. Like, we know, we know who should, who should pull out of the illness and make it another 30 years, and we know the ones who shouldn't make it past 22. We know the person who screwed us over so bad five years ago, we know that they're the ones who should have the accidental house fire. Some of y'all are like, he's crazy. We, in other words, if we were in charge, how would we choose to save the world? You know, a lot of us, we would go Marvel superheroes, wouldn't we? I mean, we, we would send like a Superman, a Batman, a, a super person to take care of the problems because if they're super, then they'll be able to take care of it. We would not naturally think, I want to send a baby who's born. In other words, I would never send a baby who's born of the nation of Israel because you don't even have to be a Christian. You just have to take basic history class. And you know that little Hebrew people group from the ancient Near East? Everybody was kicking on them. I mean, they would win a few battles here and there, but our Old Testament scholars will tell you, those of you who love the Old Testament, it's just like they got beat down and beat down and beat down to where they were almost wiped out, and then God would raise up a remnant. They would grow again. They would survive. And it's an amazing thing. You would say, why would God pick the Hebrew tribe out of the Babylonians, out of the Akkadians, out of all these ancient great warriors? Why not choose Rome? Rome, outside of modern civilization, was the greatest civilization the world had ever seen. I mean, to the point, and we're from Virginia, that George Washington was even called the Cincinnatus of the West. He was, that was his nickname to be named after a great Roman leader. And some of the founders even talked about naming it New Rome, but they didn't like the Roman idea of violating individual rights, right? That's just history to say, well, why not send him as a Roman or a Greek? Why not redo history from the beginning, not to send it to the people who just don't get it? I mean, when we read our Bibles, you know you thought this, especially if you've read the Old Testament. You're like, guys, he split the sea. Like it actually split. The Egyptians, the plagues, the frogs, the bugs, the darkness, like, hello, hello McFly. Like, what, what do you not get about this? And then sometimes when people in Sunday school, well, you know, we, we would probably do the same thing. We're like, I don't know, man. Like, I really don't know. Like, like if, if lightning striking and the old Egyptian army is wiped out, I, I, I may be like, I think there may be a God. I may follow Moses. But they just don't get it. So we say, why didn't he come as, as someone powerful? Why not come as a Greek? You've got Plato and Aristotle and Socrates that were so well known in the ancient world. I mean, you have these Greek guys like Heraclitus that it was like ancient physics. But yet you come through the nation of Israel and you describe the Messiah as a young plant and a root out of dry ground and he comes through Mary and Joseph and Joseph is a big bad carpenter. I mean, we know Joseph was a strong man, but in that day, you didn't lead armies as a carpenter. And as a young peasant girl, you didn't say, well, this is the young peasant girl who claimed God gave her her baby. Let's follow her. It goes beyond human logic. And so when we look at the Christmas story, we think about baby Jesus and all of these Christmas trappings. But we have to understand that the incarnation itself is something that goes so far beyond how we naturally think that we have to ask ourselves the question, are we willing to open ourselves up to God's logic? 
And the incarnation of Christ is, it changes our minds on so many different things in life. And notice there in verse 2, we talked about this young plant that's root out of dry ground. That's talking about humility, plain and simple. That God says the first evidence of my plan to save the world is going to be humility. Some of us, we would have a plan to where we dominate. I mean, imagine if you were God, you could send angels. In the Old Testament, there was one angel who killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. That's a, that's a night's work. Like the Navy SEALs are bad, but... One to one. I mean, that, that that's a huge kill ratio. So if you're God, you can just say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the angels. I don't even have to send people, right? Send angels and they take out the good guys, tell the good guys, take out the bad guys, tell the good guys, keep up the good work, follow the Lord. <laughs> then go back to heaven. Then everybody's freaked out. Angelic message, bad guys, bodies all over the place. And you just heard an angel sermon. But God chose to circumvent all of the power that he had and come as an infant. I'm not a father, but I do have uh, a niece and a nephew. I thought it was so cool. Uh, Micah's mom, Cassidy, she posted on Facebook the other day. She said, I kind of feel proud inside that Micah has no idea who Santa is, uh, but screams baby Jesus every time he sees a manger. And we're not getting judgy about Santa Claus, all right? I'm telling you, bring that up. You can create a war real fast. But when I look at him and I just, you know, we talk over FaceTime. Hey, I'm good deaf. You know, and he, he just, he's this little guy and he's like, where dinosaur? Where dinosaur? Because I do a great dinosaur impersonation. And he loves that. And I just see that kid. I'm like, man, he's like, we're actually related. And, and he's like, he, you can, you can ruin a child. We do know that, right? Like you can tell them to say anything they'll say. They don't even understand. I think, man, I would give my life for this kid. And then little Hannah, she's like so, I don't even know what to do with her. She's like so cute. And she's just, she's just a little baby and she's just beautiful. And you look at that and you see how innocent and helpless those little babies are. And God chose to send the Messiah to undercut all of the power that he could have used and said, I'm going to model humility. And Jesus says, I'll be the one if you want to write this down in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus voluntarily set his privileges aside and came as human flesh. Now imagine that you created, you created humankind. You know what happens around puberty time. You know how difficult it is to be a child. You know how frustrating it can be to be a teenager. He knew what was happening in the world at that time, but yet Jesus set aside his privilege and he came as one of us. To eat food, to eat some food that's better than others, to, to actually, to actually full, fully experience the human condition. And in Jesus, notice the description here in the last part of verse number two. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, with Jesus, there is no Hollywood red carpet. There were no political parties trying to hire him as an advisor. He had no followers that would be respected. People are like, Peter's an angry hick. Matthew is a scumbag, a guy who cooks the books. Judas is not emotionally stable. Andrew never talks. In other words, Jesus undercut all of the human logic to model humility for us. And the point here is that for some of us, humility is something that is as foreign as anything. 
We have yet to model humility because we are the ones who built our lives with our own two hands. We're the ones who go to work. We're the ones who provide for our families. We're the ones who's built this farm or this business or this social network or this retirement account or this friend group. And some of us have to come back to the point where we look into that manger and see the baby Jesus and understand that power doesn't always have to do with using the power that you have, but willingly laying it aside for sake of humility. And notice verse number three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, he was acquainted with grief. How many of us want to follow someone who's acquainted with grief? I mean, do we, do we buy books on grief? Like, all the grief that I've experienced. No, we want, we want somebody to help us avoid those things, don't we? We don't seek those things out. But Jesus came to the point that people looked at him like, who is this guy? You remember who Jesus' front runner was? John the Baptist. The guy who dressed in wild clothes, had a leather belt, camel's hair, and ate grasshoppers, locusts, and honey. And preached with his bags packed. That was Jesus' introduction. I mean, a sermon from John the Baptist, it was like you walk in and just, bam, immediately punches you in the face. That was John the Baptist. So Jesus didn't have any of the things that we see in this world that would attract people to us. Jesus was actually homeless, poor, single, He was despised by the political establishment, by the religious establishment. So as followers of Christ, we have noticed that the country that we know as the United States of America has changed a little bit recently. Anybody notice? By recently, probably 20, 30, 40 years. And as it continues to change, if God doesn't interrupt that shift... What we will see from the south all the way to the north is that coming to church, giving to missions, being a follower of Christ, if people say, what do you believe in? You say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. They say, so you're a Christian? You're like, yeah. They say, do you go to church? You say, yeah. They say, where do you go to church? They're, oh, wow, you actually go to church? You say, well, I actually go to a Baptist church. Oh, my Lord, you're one of them. What kind of Baptist church? And then if you say Southern Baptist, they're like, I'm out of here. Those are the people who say they believe this book and this book is full of, and they'll just, culture continues to shift. So what we could see in the future is this type of reproach falling upon people in the United States who claim to follow Jesus Christ. Because back in the day, and y'all know that this worked in back in the day, if you wanted to make connections, you go to the big church in town, right? I'm not saying that everybody who did was there for that purpose. But if you want to make good business connections, you go get connected with the big church in town. And that's kind of where things were, deals were made. But that's not the case today. And unless the Lord reverses the trend, we could see more and more reproach falling on those who follow Jesus Christ. And guess what? We are, our response should be the same as the apostles in the book of Acts, that we should have joy because we are counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. That should be our response. And notice in verse number four, what we see here is that Jesus in the incarnation changes our perspective on humility and its value. In verse three, he, he changes what we think about rejection, that it's not always bad. In verse four, it's sacrifice. It says, surely he has borne or carried our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
In other words, Jesus, the sacrifice, gave himself up for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the illustration is that a seed, when it's planted in the ground, the seed actually dies, right? But in the seed's death, it allows a plant to grow. It allows a tree to grow. And you think about the death of a tree. A tree dies, in a sense, to provide us with wood to build our houses, our wood to keep ourselves warm. And for most of us in here that would call ourselves homo sapiens, self-sacrifice is the most difficult thing in the world because we think that we lose. Have you been at church before to where they talk about money? Come on. Man, it's not one of the like the, the money things where we need another Learjet at Rocky Mount Baptist Church to give us all of your social security. Not anything like that. But like what we saw on the screen, like these people need to go to these places in the jungle and overseas to take the gospel. Like, man, I know I should I should get that, but I, I've got this thing that I want to buy. Right? Some of y'all are acting like you never ever had this issue. But for the sinners in here uh, this morning, could you humor us just for a few moments, right? And it's kind of like this pull that we have. And we look at Jesus as, boy, he bore our griefs. He suffered for us. He sacrificed for us. And then we're called to sacrifice our time or our finances. Sometimes it's just such a struggle, isn't it? And the reason why is because we somehow think that our lives are our own. Man, and some people say, okay, so what you're saying, Jeff, is that when I become a follower of Christ, I can never get a vehicle that's not a beater. Because we've seen what you drive. Right? Like, are you saying that we never go on vacation? Like, what what are you saying? What I'm saying is that our sense of values change. Amen, church? When we get saved, that it's not that we don't enjoy doing the things that we used to, as long as those are God-glorifying activities. But we get excitement from things that we never got before. For some of us, when we came to church and we were dead and we just didn't know Jesus, but it was a tradition and we didn't care if it goes one minute over 12. And even if people are coming down the aisle getting saved, we're like, it's time to leave church. Y'all Okay. We get changed by Jesus Christ. Things that never used to excite us. The Bible never seemed interesting to us except for Revelation because we're like, that is crazy. Begins to excite us and it begins to interest us. And some of us, us young guys, we say, man, how can I live for Jesus Christ? How can I be a leader? How can I, how can I get my friends to know about Jesus? How can I make much of Christ? And it begins to change what we truly value and truly get hyped up about. Because we see that Jesus, in order to bring joy, he carried our sorrows. And he was smitten by God and afflicted. And that even changes the incarnation, the coming of Christ. It changes our perspective on how we think of others. In verse 5 it says, but he was wounded for, notice this, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. It means that we naturally avoid the messiness of other people. We do, don't we? Outside of Jesus, if we know somebody talks too much or they don't smell that great or they're downright annoying, we avoid them, don't we? But Jesus came straight into the hot zone. Jesus says, not only will I come live with them, but I'll take all of their junk on myself. So if I'm a follower of Christ, it means that ultimate joy is coming to the end of myself and giving myself up. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, where he said, if, if anyone would gain the whole world but lose his own soul, it's like, what, what, what do you value? And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him first 
deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And in verse 6, we see that Jesus changes our perspective on mistakes. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why sheep? I mean, why not dogs? Dogs are too loyal. Why not some other animal? Why not? I mean, why not a sheep? Is an animal that, what we're told by sheep experts, that doesn't have a whole lot of common sense. And the Bible says that every single one of us have gone astray. And some of us, we have gone astray to the point that we have tried to live our lives in our own power. And when we wake up, we kind of look around and see this lunar landscape. There's no water. There's no sustenance. There's no life. Because even if we're able to scale that mountain of human goodness, we would never be able to satisfy the wrath of God. That's why the Bible says all of us have turned to our own way. But in verse number 7, he was oppressed. Notice how this is almost a depressing chapter. Right? I mean, he's spitten by God. Nobody respects him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet, he opened not his mouth. Time out. It doesn't take very much for us when we feel wronged to talk to people, to complain, to post on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you have it, how we have been wronged. But Jesus, through all of this, notice all of which he did not deserve one bit, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, in verse 7, that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Warren Wiersbe said this, Under the law of Moses, the sheep died for the shepherd. But under grace, the good shepherd died for the sheep. Jesus changes our perspective on suffering. I have to ask myself the question quite often when I read the material that comes from Voice of the Martyrs where these people are being persecuted for the name of Christ. What would I do? What would I do? Let's say we're on a mission trip and something goes terribly wrong or God allows something to go in the grand scheme of things, terribly right. Pastor at Rocky Mount Baptist Church, and I'm being interrogated in some dark, dank prison, and they say, all you have to do is tell these people that what you came here to talk to them about, about Jesus being the Son of God, just tell them it was not true and that you were wrong. Under pain, under deprivation, what would I do? Notice what Jesus did. He took it all. He went like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Now, a lamb that's being led to the slaughter doesn't know that it's being led to the slaughter. Lambs don't have books on how to avoid the slaughter. But can you imagine Jesus and the pressure that he was under? Knowing that you were born to die. We die as a consequence of our sin, but Jesus was actually specifically born to die. And knowing that there was a point with these people that you were healing... I mean, imagine, imagine, imagine that. Imagine that. knowing these guys that you were spending your life with these three years, the disciples, and you guys were just doing, I mean, all sorts of stuff together. You were buddies. You were, you were compadres. But yet you knew that there was going to be a point in which they would all run out and you would be tortured. And it wasn't just the physical suffering, but it was the rejection by the Father. You know, some of us, we don't do very good with pressure, do we? If we know we have a performance to do, if we know we have that big meeting with the family and people are going to get, we need to have a come to Jesus meeting and we're nervous about how it's going to go. 
we get nervous with that pressure. We know that there's, there's nervous pressure that comes when we are evaluated by our employers to see if we're, they're going to give us another contract or if we're going to be able to get another raise or if we're going to be let go. Or whether if we're self-employed, are we going to get that next job? Is the economy going to pick up that kind of pressure? Can we imagine knowing that we were going to go to what Jesus went to? Can we even conceive that kind of pressure? When I'm under pressure or what I consider pressure, which is not pressure to Jesus, I mean, compared to this, it's like I want to, you know, just, just give me a minute. Let me kind of detox. Let me focus. Most of us, we don't want to be around people if we know that there is incredible crushing pressure. But what did Jesus do when he knew what was going to happen? He took time with people. People that nobody else cared about. Like the guy on the side of the road who was lame and he just cried, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus took time for that guy. And some of us, in 2015, we've got to change our modus operandi. We've got to, y'all, listen, in Franklin, we've got to stop just hanging out with people that we know really well. And we've got to reach out to people that we don't know very well so they can know Jesus. Jesus took time with people. And then notice verse 10. This is the craziest verse if we're new to the Bible. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why would it be God's will to crush him? To crush his son? Some of you parents say, there's no way I would give up my child. Like my son. For anybody. But it says it was God's will to crush him. Meaning that God's justice had to be satisfied. So Jesus says, I'll go. I'll do it. We're always looking for salvation. We're always looking for someone to deliver us. In 2008, there was a message on on hope and change. And a lot of people bought into that. And in 2016, there will be a message probably along the same lines from either party. They just say it differently. And after political elections, once all the dust settles, we have maybe less hope than we thought that we once did. And all we have left is change. Are y'all okay? Regardless of political party, we're always looking for someone to deliver us. Some say, well, we need more free market. Others say, I want to vote so I can get something from somebody else. And we all look to people and systems and laws. But when we look to Jesus, we see that Jesus is the one who brought salvation for us. And we may say, well, how do I leave a legacy? Notice in verse number 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Oh, man. If you've read your Bible in Revelation chapter 5, there's this incredible picture of these seals that need to be broken so that God's law and his prophecy could be unveiled. And they were looking. They say, who is worthy to break these? Who's worthy to open these scrolls? They couldn't find anyone. The question for us today is we're not looking to answer and open up scrolls. We're looking at who gives the answers for my life. How should I treat my husband, my wife? How should I deal with my finances? I didn't know that my kids would be nuts, but they are. How do I deal with that? And it says no one was found worthy. In verse 3 in Revelation chapter 5. In heaven or, or on earth. To open the scroll or to look into it. And John, the apostle, the apostle of love, says in verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, this is so awesome. 
Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember verse 1? The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And I, between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. When we look at the baby Jesus, it should not remind us of cute Christmas parties, but it should remind us of our sin. It should remind us that God circumvented all of the human pride that we have and came as a child. It should remind us of our sin. But guess what? The Christmas story is just not about our sin. It's about not only God forgiving us through Christ, but how we can live for Him. Amen, church? It's not just, well, I was a sinner saved by grace and that's all I am. But it's, boy, with the life and breath that God has given me. And even if I don't make it past next week, I still have a week to use for Jesus. And so the question for us is the second to last Sunday of 2014. What are we doing with the gospel? For some of us, we're, you just hear, you say, man, I, I, it's just recently that God has brought me back to this book and brought me back to even thinking about Jesus Christ. I know I need to give my life to Christ, but I've not done it yet. 